Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Five by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. We have an excellent episode for you, starting with Jose reviewing Longshot the Dice Game. Next, I visit the Grand Carnival, Meeple Lady gives us the buzz on Honey Buzz, and Ruel discusses Super Mega Lucky Box. Last, and I hope you'll indulge me on this, but with everything going on in Ukraine, I wanted to revisit a classic review from Cat of This War of Mine. Grab your bedding sheets and be ready to sit on the edge of that seat as we go horse racing and long shot the dice game. I'm just going to be calling it Longshot for this review. But Longshot is a 1-8 to eight player roll and write betting game designed by Chris Handy I and published by Perplexed. In this dice chucker, players are going to compete to get the most money by placing bets, collecting gear, and grabbing concession bonuses throughout a single lap horse race. To play Longshot, each player is going to get a player sheet, a marker, and a setup card that gives you some free bets on a couple horses and a few numbers already crossed off on your concession stand. We'll set out the central racetrack with 8 horse tokens and a set of 8 cards at each of one of the horses. One player is going to roll 2 dice, one 8-sided die that will select a horse, and a special 6-sided die that will show how many spaces forward that horse will move. Each horse also activates a different number of other horses that also move over one space each. Players will then use that number on the 8-sided die in order to perform one of the many actions in the game. You can do things like make or enhance bets on that specific horse, collect helmets and jerseys for that horse, which will also give you other bonuses, including endgame bonus points, or you could cross off that number in your concession stand in order to cross off entire rows and columns of numbers so that you can get some really juicy bonuses like money or a free horse or the ability to move horses forwards or backwards. You can even purchase a horse if no other player has purchased it yet. Buying a horse will give you a pretty large cash payout if your horse shows at the end of the race, so if it gets either first, second, or third place. But during the game, each horse that you own will also give you a special ability that gets activated when you roll that horse's number. You continue making bets and rolling dice until three horses have crossed the finish line, and then the game ends. This version of Longshot combines two of my favorite genres betting games even though I am terrible at gambling. And I really do enjoy roll or flip or whatever and write games uh, over the past couple of years since they now kind of cover a really wide spectrum of quick and easy games to games that are thinky and crunchy and can take a while to play. Longshot definitely falls into that first camp in the best way possible. There aren't many rules in the game and the game moves at a really quick place. Every time I've played this game, it's never outstayed its welcome, even when I play with larger groups, which is another plus. This can play up to 8 people, and the game works well at every player count, and adding all those 8 people doesn't necessarily make the game that much longer. You can still play a game with 8 players in about 30 to maybe 40 minutes. Now, I can already hear what you're saying. This game sounds like a random fest of randomness, and it is a dice game, so yeah, there's going to be some randomness but there's lots of ways to mitigate the dice rolls. You can do things like increase the odds that a horse will move, even if it doesn't get rolled. You can use bonuses to move horses forwards or backwards, or you can even straight up ignore their roll up to three times in the game and use whatever number you want. 
This game also includes a few different sets of horse cards that give you different powers over the course of the game. So if you don't like one set of horse powers, maybe a different set of horse powers will make you feel like you have better control over what's going on. Another feather in this horse's cap is the component quality is really good in this game. The central board is nice and thick. The horse pieces are colorful and bright and easy to distinguish no matter where you're sitting at the table. The game doesn't have very much art, but the art that is there, it's art done by Klaus Sousa, is colorful and fun. Whenever I used to see horse betting on TV or the movies, you know, people would be watching the race and making marks in newspapers or on their sheets and be invested in every second of this horse race. And then there's always a big cheer or a groan at the very end. And this game really invokes that feeling very well of what I thought horse racing was. Every player is involved in every role and you're constantly looking at your betting sheet, filling things out, trying to figure out if you should raise bets or buy horses or do something. And in that sense, this game feels very thematic. I felt like I was one of those people in the movies watching those horse races and somehow marking things on paper that made me realize which horses were going to win next. One of the only potential negatives in this game is that in many cases, the winner of the race is going to be pretty obvious as far as who's going to get first place. I mean, that's just kind of how racing is. You can can see a winner a long way out the way. But this is where that randomness can kind of make for some exciting games because Although it looks like one horse may have the obvious advantage, there have been many games where some other horse just kind of pulled away from the pack and ended up placing when the favorite didn't end up crossing the line at all. It's just a matter of rolling dice and what other people have done to manipulate these horses. Normally, that kind of randomness can bother me in a longer game, but this game is so quick and easy that it kind of just washes off my back, and by the time I get bothered by it, the game is already over, and we're either playing a new round or we're playing something else. So, although it is random, it can be random, and there might be a runaway leader problem, the game is over pretty quick, and it doesn't feel like that big of an issue. So, between the dice play, the variety of horse decks in the box, and there's some extra decks that you can buy on the publisher site, there's tons of replayability in this game. I highly recommend Longshot if you're looking for a quick and easy betting game. As always, I'm your favorite jockey, Jose, and you can find me at Twitter at Owlazors, that's O-W-L-A-Z-O-R-S, or you can find me on Instagram at Sir Bearsworth. So stop on by and let me know what you've been playing. Hello friends, I hope you're having a splendid summer full of relaxation and or trips and or excitement of some kind. And speaking of excitement of some kind, today I would like to discuss the Grand Carnival with you all. But first I must put a Hall of Mirrors size disclaimer. I know the designer of Grand Carnival, Rob Kramer, and consider him a friend on my part. And while I've played the game several times and these are my honest opinions on it, I thought you should know up front as I've never been one to pretend that I'm unbiased. So what is the Grand Carnival? Well, in the game, each player is creating a carnival and moving patrons through it. The main action of the game is using player markers to cover action spaces 1 through 5 on your board and taking actions such as selecting a foundation tile to place on your player board, build an attraction, or move a guest through your park. Though there's a flow to this as you can't move your guests before you've put down tiles and or attractions, and you can't build attractions before you put down tiles. So for the first few rounds, most people are putting down tiles or attractions. To put down a foundation tile, you look at the by row and then activate your worker at the level, or above, of what you need. These tiles are squares with four quadrants on them, and those quadrants can be green space or hammers. The hammers are sites you can later build attractions on, and the green spaces are where the guests can walk. None of the tiles are what you need? 
Cool. Just activate your level 1 worker to draw randomly and clear out the biro. Luckily, tiles do not have to be placed next to other tiles, so you've got space to play around with. To build attractions, activate your worker from level 1 through 5 and select an attraction of that size. Attractions may cross over multiple foundation tiles, but must fit on the hammers only. No green space. Once an attraction is down, it cannot be moved, so make sure you don't accidentally block off the guest path or anything like that. The final action is to move a guest as many steps as your selected action, so 1 to 5 spaces. Why do you want to move guests? Well, when a guest stops next to an attraction, that attraction gains a ticket. Each attraction holds the number of tickets as its size, so a size 1 holds a single ticket, and a size 5 attraction holds 5 tickets. You want tickets because you need at least one ticket on an attraction for it to score at the end of the game, and you want to move both guests because as soon as the guest space is empty, you add two more guests and a carnival barker to your board. The carnival barker lets you move your guests one additional space when you move them, but be careful with this placement because your guests can't go through his space, nor can they go through an empty hammer build space or an attraction. So you have to think about how you build. I won't go into too much detail, but at the end of the game, you get points for sets of attractions with tickets on them, points for having 15 or more tickets total, points for carnival barkers, points for guests who have moved all the way across your board, and you lose points for hammers still showing. So what do I like about the Grand Carnival? Well, for starts, I like that it's a fairly simple game. I, I know, my explanation doesn't sound super simple, but that's mostly because I'm terrible at explaining games these days. You have short-term goals that are clear because you want to get attractions out and tickets on them. That means you need to get foundations that fit what attraction you want, then place it, then move guests next to it. Really, it's actually pretty straightforward, and after a few rounds, you really start to get into a flow. At the end of your turn, you can check to see if you completed any of the specific scenarios on the Tricks of the Trade cards. These give you bonuses when you complete them, which are nice. I also like the art, which has some nice whimsy to it. And finally, I like that it's mostly multiplayer solitaire, but with competition to get the foundation tiles you want or attractions you want before they run out. So it's a race, but your opponent can't really mess you up directly or too badly. What don't I like about the Grand Carnival is sadly also the art. In the first edition, there's a lack of diversity in body types that I find disappointing. I've seen that the new art is better for that, but the new art is also very shiny, while I like the old-timey flat bubblegum art sort of feel. I'm sure I'm nitpicking, but it bothers me to see a board full of 90% white people with stick or hourglass-shaped women next to thin or pudgy men. I'm also not a huge fan of the meeples. I feel like they're overly complex. And lastly, I'm not a fan of always losing. I've never won a single game of this, though I probably should lose to the designer of the game, though I've also lost to others. I think in part it's because I don't understand the guest movement part very well and don't optimize it well at all. And those are my thoughts on the Grand Carnival. I hope you give it a try, either now or when more copies are out after the latest Kickstarter, especially if you like set collection or tile placement games. Until next time, this has been Mike for the 5 by. The great honeybee, known for the large size of their colonies and the production and storage of honey, nature's nectar. But did you know they have also discovered economics? In Honey Buzz, a game published in 2020 by Elf Creek Games, these intrepid honeybees have discovered that by selling their honey in the woodland market, the bears and other creatures will leave the hive alone. Honey Buzz, which plays one to four people, is designed by Paul Salomon, with artwork by Anne Haidsick. And the game plays in about 90 minutes. It's a worker placement game where you place your beeples, yes, I said beeples, the bee meeples, on various action locations, 
but the game's buzzworthiness increases with the game including mechanisms such as puzzling, beelining, and an economic market. A golden yellow and orange color scheme fills out the two game boards, the hive board and the woodland board, and with adorable creatures transporting you to a whimsical nature setting. The components include hexagonal tiles made up of sturdy cardboard, squishy honey pieces, plastic pollen gems, cardboard coins made up of leaves, acorns, and bear claws, and cards for orders and starting configurations. On your turn, you can take a tile or recall your workers. When you take a tile, you assign one or more beeples to a hive box of your choice on the hive board. No matter how many workers you assign, you stack them in a single stack, making a beeline. When you choose a box that's occupied by another player, you must assign exactly one more worker than the tallest beeline that's in that spot. You then take the tile associated with that spot, of which there are six on the hive board, and expand your hive. Each tile is made up of two side-by-side yellow hexagon tiles, kind of like in the shape of a number eight, and one hexagon is blank while the other has a symbol, which are connected to other actions. Forage, produce, new bees, and decree action icons are found on standard and starting hive tiles, while the marketing and accounting are only found on the standard hive tiles. You place these tiles to build out your hive from your starting hive tile and beyond by only touching the yellow edges on the tiles. Eventually, you'll create these honeycomb patterns in your hive consisting of three tiles, leaving a hole in the middle for a specific single nectar hexagon tile to fit into based on what you build around it. When this happens, all the actions activate. To forage, you move your forage token on the woodland board. The woodland board is filled with single hexagon nectar tiles that you place in the middle of your hive configurations based on the pattern you've created. You may move your token one space for free, and then you may spend two coins to move it an extra space. If you land on an empty space, you may collect one pollen. The produce action produces honey for each nectar space it is adjacent to. Accounting is taking five coins from the supply, Newbies is adding bees to your personal supply, enabling you to take more actions on future turns. To decree, these symbols act as a wild. They will cost five coins to take, but could be worth it when they activate. Players start the game with one to two beeples and five to 15 coins, depending on the turn order. To take the marketing action, you can either sell to the market or complete an order. Certain types of honey are more valuable than others in the market. And when you sell your honey, the value of that honey drops. When the price of that specific honey reaches the bottom of its column, you can instead choose to lower the value of another honey. If you decide to complete an order, turn in that honey that's required on one of the three order cards on the board to gain VPs at the end of the game. If you have no more beeples to take a tile, you must recall them. You may also move your forage token one space, and that ends your turn. In each game, three of the queen's contests are available. Contests are opportunities to earn coins or points by competing against other players in certain categories. There are two types of contests, speed contests and final contests. In speed contests, the first player to complete an objective gets the most points, second gets a second, etc. For the final contests, players will get points based on where they're ranked for it at the end of the game. The game ends when four of the five resources on the market cannot drop any further or when two of the three stacks of orders are completed. Victory points are then tallied up. Coins are VPs, honey and pollen are worth one VP each, and contests and orders are worth the VPs listed. 
the person with the most VPs wins the game. I love the beeline mechanism where you have to manage your beeple supply in order to take the tiles you want before others make it too expensive for you to do so. Honeybuzz also has an excellent spatial puzzle element. While expanding your hive isn't difficult, expanding it where you want a certain group of actions to all trigger or make the most lucrative type of honey elevates the game from just something cute to a crunchier gaming experience. This game is definitely worth the buzz, and its fantastic components are just an added bonus to this already gorgeous game. And that's Honey Buzz. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Spectacular. Fun. Colossal. Fantastic. Tremendous. All of these adjectives are apt descriptions of the joy in each session of this bingo-style flip-and-write game. Reveal a number, mark it on one of your scorecards, and attempt to fill in rows or columns for bonuses or points. Score the highest amount of points, and you win! Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Super Mega Lucky Box, a game by Phil Walker-Harding, with illustrations by Sergei Seidlitz. Super Mega Lucky Box was published in 2021 by GameRight. In Super Mega Lucky Box, each player gets a set of scorecards consisting of a 3x3 grid of random numbers 1 through 9. One player then reveals a card from the numbered card deck, and everybody crosses off that number on one of their scorecards. As the game progresses, players will complete rows and or columns on their scorecards and unlock bonuses. These can be a specific number, a number of their choice, a lightning bolt, a moon, or a star. Lightning bolts are used to change a number up or down, moons are scored for the most at the end, and stars are additional points. Each round consists of revealing nine random numbers. At the end of the round, players score any completed scorecards. Then, the number cards are reshuffled together. There are 18 cards made up of two sets of each number, one through nine, but only half are used each round. After four rounds, the player with the most points wins. Super Mega Lucky Box is the latest in a long line of hits from Phil Walker-Harding. I'm a longtime fan of Walker Harding, who excels at designing board games that are accessible by new gamers while surprising hobby gamers with their depth and replayabilities. From the genre-defining card drafting of Sushi Go to the underrated tile lane of Baron Park, Walker Harding games consistently deliver satisfying gaming experiences in the 20 to 45 minute range that appeal to all types of gamers. In Super Mega Lucky Box, Walker Harding goes back to his previous roll and write or flip and fill game silver and gold, and further refines it. In fact, Super Mega Lucky Box is so stripped down to its elements that it's basically bingo with a few twists. And by taking the basic gameplay of silver and gold and removing the polyomino aspect, Super Mega Lucky Box gets right to the best part of silver and gold more quickly. The combinations that happen as you fulfill goals on one card that allow you to mark off other boxes on another card. Players no longer need to figure out how they'll fill up their scorecards with the Tetris-style pieces in Silver and Gold. Super Mega Lucky Box keeps things pure. Simply cross out the number that's been revealed, then do it again, and again, and again, until you've completed a row, or column, or both. For nearly every row or column, there's a bonus that allows you to cross out another number or collect other bonuses. For example, you might finish one row that gives you a bonus number 5. You then cross out another 5 on the card or on another card. Perhaps the 5 you cross off gives you 2 lightning bolts and you completely fill out the card. Take the 2 lightning bolt tokens and on a future turn you may spend as many lightning bolts to change a number that's been revealed. 
For example, add one lightning bolt to make a five a six, or spend two lightning bolts to make a five a three. And after you've completed a scorecard, set it aside to score at the end of the round. Bingo players never had this kind of luck mitigation, right? Best of all, there are many ways to score in the game. Complete a column or row with a star, and you'll score a point. If you manage to complete two or three stars in a round, you'll either score four or nine points respectively. Or perhaps you've completed a column that gives you a moon. Collect a moon token from the supply, and in a throwback to Sushi Go dessert scoring, the player with the most moons at the end of the game scores six extra points, and the player with the fewest moons loses six points. It's these bingo with gamer twists that I love most about Super Mega Lucky Box and has made it a game night staple in my home. There's something so satisfying about pulling off big multi-card combinations, crossing off numbers and or collecting bonuses from just a single revealed number card. And I think that's what Walker Harding realized when playing Silver and Gold. While it was fun puzzling out how to most efficiently use the polyominoes, the bigger excitement of that game was in being able to cross off extra spaces and also score palm tree bonuses. That's what Super Mega Lucky Box does so well. It gives players that dopamine hit of combo-tastic fun early and often throughout a game. For a 20-minute game, every player should have a few moments when they're unlocking and crossing off several extra numbers and completing cards for more points. The game plays 1-6 players, and you can combine two boxes to play up to 12 players. There's no real player interaction in a game. You're all just racing to complete your scorecards as fast as possible, since they're worth more points the earlier you finish them. No matter the player count, it's a quick game that can be played several times in a night, and yes, I'm speaking from experience. From its schoolhouse rock-style font to the straightforward and combo-tastic gameplay, Super Mega Lucky Box delivers on its box cover promise of a spectacularly fun game. In the words of the brothers Murph, praise be. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Super Mega Lucky Box, so find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. My college roommate Renata came to the United States in 1991 as an exchange student from Yugoslavia. When it came time to go home in the summer of 1992, her country was at war. The plane tickets her parents had purchased for her were for an airline that no longer existed. Her host family extended her visit, and she ended up applying to college here. She came to university with the goal of becoming an architect, so that she could rebuild all the precious landmarks in her beloved Sarajevo. I will never forget her love of country and extreme confusion as to how the Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian kids that she grew up with could turn from kindred spirits into enemies in a few short months. This war of mine, designed by Mikal Orosh and Jakub Wisnusk and artist Pavel Nizulek, and published by Awakened Realms, brings to life the reality of civilians living in war through a complex, cooperative storytelling game for one to six players. You begin the game with three people squatting into house together with a few resources and a whole lot of rubble. They need to eat food and drink water, and you can only keep them on their feet for so many days before they collapse from fatigue. But push them you must. Every action is crucial. If they don't watch the door or bravely face sniper fire to meet visitors, they may fail to survive. However, Every missed meal, illness, or misery endured adds statuses that shorten the number of actions each worker has each day. This war of mine has the agonizing decision space and creative engine building that I love so much. Need rest? Build a bed. It seems so deceptively easy, but this game is anything but. The genius of this game is the house itself. 
Initially full of rubble to be removed and rooms to be explored, you start with a few worker placement spots built into the house itself. You can go outside to meet a visitor who might move in or offer something to trade. You can dream up new ideas to add to the most important pile of cards in the game, the fittings pile. This set of cards contains items you can build that add worker placement spots to the house. Things like rainwater collection, a furnace, or a radio. This increasing game space becomes agonizing when your wounded or hungry characters have fewer and fewer actions to use each day. After the day actions, you head into evening where you can go scavenging, leave people to guard the door, or let them sleep as a last resort. This is where the game asks you to push your luck and roll some dice. Thematically, this works as you are in an unpredictable and hostile environment where luck could be a life or death situation. This also plays out mechanically as the type of game mechanics that you interact with at this point are diverse, and until you come across them unexplained. This brings up the most divisive aspect of this game. There is no traditional rulebook, just a journal with one page for setup, and a description of each phase of the game, and a couple details to sort out some of the complexity. Technically, it is enough to get you through a first play of the game, but I visited the BGG forums more than once for help. With over 200 rules threads on the game, it appears that a few other people struggled as well. Some will embrace this struggle as a thematic first-time experience of surviving war. Others want to know how to succeed before they even start. Many games have pathetic solo or two-player variants. This game has the opposite problem. I would call this a solo game that multiple people can play together. BGG recommends it for one to three players and rates it best at one. In a multiplayer game, players take turns making all decisions for the household during a phase. Other players can argue over a course of action, but the lead player makes all decisions and rolls all the dice. I can't imagine enjoying the downtime in a 4-6 to six player game. This game will make you cry, but it will also remind you how lucky you are. Playing this game, I am often reminded of what a fine line there is between the life I take for granted and one in which I have to search for every drop of water and forage for every bite of food. That might make this more a work of art than game, but it is important. I would find a way to play it with someone you love so that you can both experience the twists and turns that this game throws at you. I love this game and recommend it to you with all my heart. Until next time, you can find me at Cat Library on BGG or Kybrarian on Twitter. Thanks for listening to The Five By. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG guild number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or check out our website, 5bygames.com. If you like what you hear on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit patreon.com slash 5 games. Thank you.